Queen story time. Tax increases everywhere in blue states. People fleeing blue states for red states. Nonsense being spoken by politicians and pundits about woke culture and how it's the future and catchphrases like inclusivity. Many of these things seem lunatic to most clear-thinking adults, and yet we still live with it. And the rest of us who try to be clear-thinking, straight-ahead working folk can't fathom how this stuff continues to be voted for. Well, maybe it's because... It isn't being voted for. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. And you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store, the iTunes App Store, whichever device you use, and download the free Podbean app. Podbean.com is our hosting service, as it is for many podcasts that are out there today. Or you can simply use your native podcast aggregator app, either on the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store. Google has a new app called Google Podcasts, and you can search out The Jamie Dury Show and subscribe that way. Whichever way you choose to subscribe, you can send messages, you can leave reviews, comments, and we desperately need more of both of a positive nature so that the show can continue to grow. You can also email me directly at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com. So what am I talking about with respect to uh, the vote? You know, it's been very, very popular to say that Republicans and people who object to the results of the 2020 election or have questions about some of the um, races that took place this past midterm cycle here in 2022, or last year, 2022, rather, that we're election deniers, and you're quickly denounced, and you're not allowed to even say anything about it, not even allowed to discuss it. You're going to be roundly denounced and dismissed and shut up. And if you are a person or a politician or a commentator and you're a guest on a show, you're immediately to ask, asked to state, can't we just agree that the 2020 election was good? The fact that the opposition wants you to agree to it indicates that they have some problem that they're worried about. Uh, You should not agree to it. And I have to point out here, as I have several times in episodes in the past, but it's important for me to point it out again today, now that I'm going to be speaking about this for a few minutes today, that we were not the first election deniers. Who was it that was denying elections back in 2000 when Al Gore lost to George W. Bush, and everyone had a fit. The Clinton administration was going to the point of trashing the White House and stealing computers like little kids in a temper tantrum. Talk about smooth, orderly transitions. Why are smooth, orderly transitions never spoken about when they're the ones inhibiting it, they meaning the Democrats? And there's a curious thing about the 2000 presidential election that's, that's really never talked about. First of all, I think three newspapers following the official count did their own recounts of the Florida election. And not a one of them had Al Gore winning. In fact, in those recounts, they actually found uh, additional votes for George W. Bush. That's interesting, isn't it? Usually when they find these additional votes, they're 
always for Democrats. Oh, look at this. We found a box over here in the corner, and ha, 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 they're all for the Democrat. But that wasn't the case in, in 2000 in Florida. So everyone knew, everyone except Al Gore, and I suspect he knew at some level but wouldn't admit it, that he lost Florida, and therefore he lost the 2000 presidential election. But what is never mentioned in that election, what is never mentioned, and they should, was that Al Gore had been a senator from the state of Tennessee for years before he became Bill Clinton's vice president. Al Gore lost his home state of Tennessee. Had he been able to win his home state of Tennessee, he would have garnered 11 additional electoral votes. And instead of him losing 271 to 266, Al Gore would have had 277 electoral votes to George W. Bush's 260. And he wouldn't have had to rely on Florida. Just something to consider for the history books. Who were the election deniers when Stacey Abrams lost her first bid for governor by a thin margin and everyone said uh, when she lost to Kemp, oh, she's the real governor and she walked around for four years like she was the governor in exile. Who were the election deniers when Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential election simply because he outworked everybody, mowed down 16 professional politicians um, to clear the field, and then beat Hillary Clinton, despite the fact that they stopped the counting in many states because they were looking for votes. They didn't have the machine fully greased up that year because they believed their own nonsense. They believed their own polls and believed that she would win, so they didn't feel the need to have everything ready. In 2020, though, they were taking no chances. But they were the election deniers in 2016, saying that Russia did it. And after $30 million plus spent in an exhaustive investigation, several investigations, impeachment hearings, no one can come up with this, despite that the people uh, conducting these investigations in many cases, like that Eric Swalwell in California, sleeping with a Chinese spy, uh, he said, don't look here, uh, look over there at uh, Mr. Trump. All I can say is Donald Trump must be one of the cleanest individuals that I know, given that he's been investigated I don't know how many times, and they can't come up with anything. And Lord knows the people they've assigned to investigate him certainly are not Trump fans, and they would love to find something, but I guess they just can't find it, which is probably why they had to manufacture a dossier and pay for it. And that fact is like laughed off. The FBI is complicit in it, and it's laughed off. You know, you look at these local police departments when something is alleged that a cop does wrong, they all have their own version of internal affairs. They delve into it. They look into everything. Where's the Internal Affairs Bureau in the FBI? I guess there isn't one. And as I said, in an upcoming podcast, we're going to be doing a podcast just about the FBI and whether or not going forward uh, we really need an FBI. In fact, we may question whether we ever needed an FBI. But given the sorry state that the agency's in, we certainly don't need it now. But getting back to this election business, 2020, you can't... I I wanted to give you that background about who were the real election deniers because um, everybody seems to forget that. But getting back to 2020, they don't want you to be able to say it. You're dismissed as a lunatic. Now, in the days after the election, there was rumors that in Maricopa County, Arizona, a number of ballots were accepted by the county 
the day and a couple of days after Election Day, uh, and that these votes were counted. But the NBC articles and such said this is not true. It's a fraudulent. Well, Verify Vote, or Verify the Vote, is a watchdog group that's been going out conducting uh, their own investigations. Actually, Verity Vote, my mistake. Verity Vote. And they did this rather recently, and they did this through Freedom of Information Act requests. Originally, they wanted to know what the influx of votes were that came into the Maricopa County office preceding the election, because since they were doing mail-in ballots during the middle of the pandemic, the Arizona elections officials had instructed voters that if you wanted your ballot received in a timely fashion, that they had to be mailed or should be mailed by October 27th to ensure that they reached the office by November 3rd. Excuse me, I forgot to silence my phone. Well, on October 28th, the county received... 58,500 ballots. Perfectly fine. These are all Freedom of Information Act requests, by the way. Verified by the state of Arizona. October 29th, 14,500. October 30th, 10,500. October 31st, 6,000. November 1st, 1,500. November 2nd, 1,000. And Election Day, 2,500 received. And in order to be counted invalid, they had to be received by 7 p.m., But what you saw from that continuum of numbers is that we got closer and closer to the election day. The number of ballots received dwindled because people, fewer and fewer people were bothering to mailing, mail in ballots at that late date, thinking they wouldn't get there. So you would think that trend should continue for the day after, you know, ballots that were mailed but didn't quite make it on time. Well, guess what? Despite having received only 1,500 ballots on November 1st, and 1,000, oh, I'm sorry, 1,000 ballots on November 2nd and 2,500 on Election Day. On November 4th, again, Freedom of Information Act request from the state of Arizona, 18,000 ballots received on November 4th, the day after the election. November 5th, 1,000 late invalid ballots. And November 6th, 1,500 late ballots. That's a total of 20,500 ballots. Now, when Verity Vote first requested these numbers, they received a very timely and speedy response from the state of Arizona with respect to the number of ballots that came into Maricopa County in the days leading up to the election. Then they had the idea afterward, gee, I wonder how many came in the day after. And they waited and waited and waited to get a response, and they didn't get a response. They finally had to get to the attorney general to get uh, some action on this, and they finally got it, and that's how they found out about these late votes. So that's a total of 20,500 ballots. Only 934 of those ballots were rejected for lateness. Meanwhile, all 20,500 should have been rejected. Now, I have to point out at this juncture that the margin of victory in the state of Arizona in the presidential race for 2020 was 10,500 votes. And you're telling me and people like-minded that we don't have a right to question even in the public 
debate in the public forum, the public square, the fact that almost 20,000 ballots were counted that should never have been counted in a state with a margin of victory was 10,500 votes. We absolutely have a right to question that. And this is not isolated to the state of Arizona. Wisconsin. There is an, another organization known as Election Watch. Now, that's a Wisconsin election integrity watchdog organization. They haven't let this go. Now, this article was just published on January 4th, which was yesterday. So it's very current. They have discovered that more than 150,000 votes cast in the state of Wisconsin in the 2020 presidential election cannot be connected with a valid address. This is of some concern. Let me look how we get these numbers. A computer uh, analyst that works for them by the name of Peter Berniger said that the group study of Wisconsin voter rolls, I'm pulling from the article now, found 45,000 such occurrences involving people who were living out of state in the November 3rd ballot, with another 107,000 documented instances on the part of voters who moved to another address within the state and cast a ballot in a different jurisdiction from the one in which they actually reside. That's over 150,000 votes. Now, aside from the fact that this creates some question as to whether these people really existed, whether they were double registered, whether they voted in another state in addition to voting in Wisconsin, this inability to validate address is illegal in the state of Wisconsin. So these 150,000 ballots should never have been counted. And we already know that the margin of victory was far less than 150,000. I think it was something on the order of eight or 10,000 again. Quote, though there may be a reasonable explanation for most of these, the number of instances is so large that if only two of these 10, two out of every 10 of these 150,000 ballots were nefariously cast, that was enough to tip the election to Biden. So if there was monkey business on only 20% of these votes, that moved the election to Biden. Now, a former resident of the state, Jacob Aldridge, um, he's a good case study in point. He's 27 years old. He's an industrial engineer. He lives in Tennessee. Quote, I was outraged to learn that the Wisconsin state voter rolls shows that I voted in person at the polls on November 3rd, 2020, when the fact is I was living, registered to vote, and voted in Tennessee. I was not in Wisconsin that day. The entire situation distresses me because without election integrity, your vote doesn't matter. Now stop and think about that. You can say it's an isolated case. How did somebody know, somebody who wanted to cast that vote, and we can presume it was cast for, for um, Joe Biden, how did someone know that Jacob Aldrich was no longer living in Wisconsin and was in fact registered to vote in the state of Tennessee and voted in Tennessee. Somehow someone's got access to a database where they know registered voters who have left the state. So they know they're not going to check. It isn't like they moved 
from one part of the state to another, and they went to cast a vote, and somebody says, oh, you already voted that day. No, they're in a completely different state. So if it happened once, it can happen more than once. This is a valid, valid concern. And the biggest problem that's contributing to all of this nonsense is that we really no longer have Election Day in this country, which I had said uh, several podcasts ago. We now have election weeks in this country where people uh, vote for weeks leading up to an election by mail-in or early voting at polls. All this does is increase the opportunity for fraud. Having everybody vote on the same day is the only way to have a really secure election. And lest you think that we are against people mailing in a vote, we are not. We just think that it should be done the way it always was done, in the form of an absentee ballot, meaning the voter themselves has to formally request the ballot, stating that they're either ill, they're not ambulatory, they're going to be traveling, they're out of state on the date of election. We need an absentee ballot. There's no problem with that. That's always been a small number. In fact, a great many of our servicemen and women who are deployed overseas have always voted that way. We have no problem with that. But to simply mail out mass mail-in ballots to the voter rolls, when you know these voter rolls are inherently inaccurate, is to invite fraud and invite people to capitalize on that. So, something to think about. Here we have bona fide evidence in two states, both of which were tipped to Joe Biden. And if either of them had flipped, we would have a different president in the White House. And I'm sure that if we dig deeply, we can find similar phenomenon taking place in Pennsylvania and Georgia and any of these other swing states. Now, we'll take a different tact. We're going to move away from election integrity and move into something that's a little more disconcerting. COVID. And in a way, it's sort of connected because people did use the COVID crisis to harm Donald Trump. It damaged the markets, but he brought everything back. He brought us vaccines. And I don't hold anything against Donald Trump for trying to get a vaccine because people were dying and people were frightened. No thanks to the media, who did nothing to calm people's fears. (coughs) And people were demanding action, so the man acted. And he brought together a vaccine, which the current administration's laying claim for, in record time. But Donald Trump is not a doctor, so he would have no way of knowing if this thing was medically sound or safe. He's relying on experts. And when the experts are lying to you, you have a problem. I still believe that the Chinese did this deliberately because Donald Trump had taken them to school in trade negotiations, and they realized he was a threat. So they wanted to get a puppet in there. And since they've been doing business with Biden for most of his political career— He would be a good friend to have in there. But listen to this little tidbit of information. It regards COVID deaths of a cardiac nature that we fairly think we can tie to the vaccines. More than 270 sudden cardiac deaths have taken place in the U.S. in athletes after vaccination. And that's important because 270 may not sound like a lot, but that's 270 just since vaccinations 
have been available. And they weren't available, I think, until very, very late uh, in 2020. So they've only been around for about two years. And in the beginning, athletes, young people, were not priorities for getting the vaccine. So mostly people that were sick and the elderly, they got them first, people at high risk groups. So the vaccinated population of athletes uh, is a much shorter window of time, perhaps a year and a half. So just listen to some of the things that are uh, explained in this article. 279 athletes and former athletes in the United States have died from cardiac arrest after taking COVID-19 vaccines. Authored by structural biologist Panagas Polycretus, a board-certified internist and cardiologist, Dr. Peter McHugh, this study cited data that found from 2021 to 2022 at least 1,616 cardiac arrests, means heart attacks, have been globally dominated in vaccinated athletes, with 1,114 of those being fatal. This is globally. Now, 270 of them have been Americans, but this is what happened globally. The global data is what also showed that former and current American athletes made up about 279 of the mortalities. Now, lest you think this is not significant because it isn't a very high number, uh, it is a high number when you consider what the typical mortality rate is and the chance of sudden cardiac death in athletes. Because a 2016 U.S. study, a study that was made long before COVID ever came on the scene, so nobody could say it was made to refute this, showed that non-athletes compared to athletes have a 29 times higher chance of sudden cardiac death. So the sudden cardiac death from athletes is far lower. And they also, one of the authors, they, one of the authors, uh, the latter, Peter McHugh, pointed to a European study that had tracked sudden cardiac deaths in European athletes over a 38-year period from 1966 to 2004. That's a pretty comprehensive study. Over that time, a little 38 years, the study reported 1,000 101 sudden cardiac deaths of athletes over a 38-year period. This amortizes out to around 29 deaths per year. And there's no reason to believe that there should be any striking difference in the number of sudden cardiac deaths or the death rate of European athletes to American athletes. So we have a 29-per-year death rate generally speaking, pre-COVID, among athletes. And all of a sudden, we see 1,616 globally documented cardiac arrests of vaccinated athletes, with 1,114 of them being fatal. Another way to look at it, if you want to juxtapose the European numbers to America, Where 29 sudden cardiac deaths should be considered the norm, let's say 30 and round it up for American athletes, between 2021 and 2022, 279 
American athletes, former and current, died from sudden cardiac death. That's 10 times the number. So if you don't think something's up, something is up. And what is it all for? For a vaccine that doesn't do very much for us. It doesn't do very much for us at all. So I did a little checking into these vaccines because I wanted to get a sense of how they work. Uh, it's, it's actually very interesting. The MNRA, uh, mRNA, I'm sorry, technology is very different. It enters into the cell without getting overly complicated. It encourages the cell to manufacture antibodies to the spike protein, but it doesn't contain a dead virus like traditional vaccines have in the past, like polio or even the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that we have for COVID. But what happens is, by doing this, it does create an antibody, albeit not as effective as we would like, for the specific strain it was created for. It doesn't do anything to help us with variants. For that, you need boosters. And the other problem is, as a consequence of these vaccines, your own natural immune system is suppressed somewhat. So its ability to fight the variants is also reduced. So it's almost like being a heroin addict to a degree, uh, not the high or the junkie fix. But once you get these vaccines, you need to keep getting the boosters if you want to have continued immunity. And in that vein, when you look at it in the light in which I've just explained it, these boosters really aren't boosters. They're telling you they're boosters because they want you to believe you're just getting a boost to a vaccine you've already received. In effect, they're new vaccines to deal with a new strain. If people were marketed that way, hey, you got to get another COVID vaccine, people would say, screw you. We've had enough of it. Now, myself and my own businesses, I really felt, I did this for my family as a financial decision, that I was not going to be able to work in either of my two businesses. And if I don't work, I don't get paid because I'm self-employed and I do things where I have to go into certain um, uh, venues and facilities that were requiring vaccination. So I got the first two vaccines from Moderna. As it turned out, there would have been one event that I couldn't have attend, have performed at, and there would have been one social event that I couldn't have attended. That would have been the only fallout. Had I known that, I never would have gotten the vaccines. And I can tell you now, I will never get the boosters. And if you have children and you love your children, my advice is you never give it to them because the doctor, who the scientist who invented the mRNA technology wrote a very extensive article stating, I like it, I believe in it for adults. Do not give it to your children because they're not fully formed. And the way it works, it can create side effects in your children, which could be potentially lethal and are absolutely irreversible, like enlarged hearts. So we have a lot going on in this country where we're being sold a bill of goods. And the two of these sort of Two of these issues that I cover today sort of uh, are facilitated by the same common enemy, a press that was supposed to be a free press, but is no longer a free press, and is increasingly a propaganda machine. And as social media 
has encroached and continues to encroach in our lives and becomes almost a primary vehicle for the dissemination of information to people, especially young people who get almost all their news from places like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and these other social media sites. They have an obligation to allow all viewpoints to be ventilated. They don't do that. Facebook, YouTube, I've tried to take this show and put an image up and put it up on YouTube as a way of growing the show. And every time I do, oh, I'm sorry, we have to take it down. You're being warned. You have violated our disinformation policy, our misinformation policy. And how do they define misinformation? Anything they don't agree with. So the First Amendment is under big attack in this country. And if we don't start regulating these social media uh, platforms uh, and hold them to, to uh, account and hold their feet to the fire, we're going to find that we can't get information anywhere. And perhaps that is why independent podcasts like this one have been the fastest growing form of communication uh, among people who are uh, my age or a little bit younger because people realize they can no longer trust the mainstream press. Even Fox News, which is increasingly run by Rupert Murdoch's children, not Rupert Murdoch, because he's getting a little older now and they're not as conservative as he is. So I wanted to get this out because it's something that's not being spoken about. And I see no reason to continue to do shows only about what's going on in the news because the news is covering that or not covering it as you see fit. Tomorrow, we'll try and have something on uh, the turmoil that's going on in the House of Representatives to select a speaker. For The Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>